<laughs> nice. All right, I'm going to pray. Let's get into this. God, I want to thank you for grace and mercy and uh, for community. Lord, and as we go build our own burgers today, Lord, I pray that you would just kind of bless our time of community together. I pray that the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So this week, we're going to start a new series. It's in the book of Jonah. Now, yeah, hoo hoo. I've been running from this book, and no pun intended, for a long time. In fact, I said, God, you know, Jonah's like, it's, it's a short book. There's four chapters, and they're four really short chapters. Like, this is the book of Jonah. There's just like two pages. And I'm like, there's, it's a, it's a story about a guy, a spry prophet, who actually gets eaten by a fish. And now, there's a lot of debate on whether or not this is a historical book or if this is just a symbolic story. I guess people have a hard time getting their head around the fact that this dude runs away from God, gets swallowed up by a fish, and then gets puked up on the shore like three or four days, three days later, and he walks out. And I guess that would be hard to kind of to get our minds around. I, I mean, I mean, I understand that. Now, those who would argue that it's just symbolic would say that the book was written by a kind of an open-minded Jewish person way back when, and this open-minded person wanted to share a open-mindedness that God really loves all people and wants, and wants people to come to a place of repentance. But if you, if you dig deeper into the historical and the cultural uh, context of, of when the book was written, even in the, even in the, um, the social context, that's probably, there's not a lot of evidence that can support that idea. My belief is this. It's a true story. That this big old fish did eat this guy and then on the shore three days later. And I, oh, wait, did I, say, I think I put vomiting in here, but I just had to blow the word puke. I mean, puke is so much better, right? So, so, and, and, and so here we have a historical thing that took place, but there are so many deeper truths in this book that we can just kind of glean from. In fact, there, there's one just overlying factor is that, that God Almighty pursues people for repentance, not just hoping, oh, please, please repent, please repent, but he pursues them that, that, that they, they would repent and then have life. And in that place of repentance, God gives life to those people. At the very least, the community that's hearing this story originally would kind of been pretty shocked at the all-inclusiveness of God, that he would actually care about other people besides the Jewish people. So, like I said, I've run from this book for a long... In fact, before Galatians, um, I, I thought that God was telling me to do Jonah, but obviously he was wrong and it was my plan that was better. And then we went into the book of Galatians, which was, uh, it was a hard book for me to preach through. I don't know why, maybe because I was disobedient and not going through Jonah. I doubt that, but I mean, it could be. So Jonah chapter one, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of his father, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran, text, oh, must've missed that. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, Tarshish. He went down to Joppa 
where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish, Tar- for that place to flee from the Lord. Can you say that 10 times fast, anybody? No, one at a time, because you get away. Who wants to say it 10 times fast? Oh, nice. Yeah, okay, good. All right. So this is not the first time that Jonah is mentioned in the Bible. Second Kings chapter 14, I think, is it? Uh, yeah, Second Kings 14, there's this blurb about him, and he's a prophet, and he prophesies something good for Israel. And the prophecy actually takes place. And so he's kind of, he kind of gets this popular, popularity to him. Not too often that prophets, Old Testament prophets, would prophesy something good. But he does, and it comes true, and it comes true pr- pretty quick. And so people think he's a pretty good guy, but not all people think he's a good guy because he's from the northern kingdom, which succeeded from Judah and from the Davidic rule. So not everybody is really happy with Jonah. And so at best, if he turns out to be a hero in this story, he's going to end up being a not so popular one. So God comes to him and he says, Jonah, go. Now, just so you know, prophets normally don't go to foreign lands to speak against those lands. They like to stay in the comfort of their own home. They like to stay in the comfort of their own nation. And then they prophesy all the bad things that God is going to do. And of all places, like Nineveh, that's where he's headed. Nineveh is just a big, bad, ugly place full of big, bad people that are just self-exalting and self-centered and anti-God. It's a main city in Assyria, which was probably one of the, which was the world power at the time. And Nineveh was a constant threat to the safety and the peace of Israel. And God tells him, go. I mean, it's right up there with Vegas as a sin city. All right. So now the sin of Nineveh is probably not the sin that you're thinking of. The sin of Nineveh is not necessarily idolatry, which is the worshiping of false gods, which I'm sure that they were doing, and they did. But what was coming up before the Lord, the sin that was coming up before them, was it would be considered moral laws. So it wasn't idolatry. It was the moral laws that all the nations were, all the people are obligated to try to keep at least. And if you didn't, it was to your own bad. The prophet Amos would describe it as man's inhumanity toward man. These were the sins that were coming up before God from Nineveh. So it's violence, it's anger, it's hatred, it's sexual immorality, it's pride, it's arrogance. It's all those things that people do to other people that hurt those people. Slavery was one of them. These are the sins that are coming up before God. Those are the things that are taking place. Nineveh was just like Sodom. And the Lord wasn't too favorable upon Sodom or Gomorrah. And God tells Jonah, go. Go to that place. Go to all those people and tell them that things are not going to end well if they continue to live the way they're going to live. And Jonah, being the godly prophet that he is, he doesn't go. In fact, he runs in the other direction. Now, you would think his response would be different. He's a prophet of God. And he's got a pretty good track record established. He actually brought something good to Israel, and it happens. And so he's kind of sort of popular. 
But he's not going to have any of this whole thing, and he is going to run. I mean, he can even, there's a precedent in the Bible for for men of God, even prophets, to argue with God. They get their assignment and they complain. And they're like, wah, I don't want to go. Wah, what's, I mean, but but not even, that, that's not even the case with Jonah. Moses did it right from the burning bush. Moses was a complainer. Right from the, and Elijah's trying to get God to change his mind. He's like, just kill me now. You know, there's nobody left with me. Just kill, you know. And so there's a precedent for that. But complete disobedience, this is unheard of. This guy is ready to go from hero to zero really quick in the eyes of the people that are hearing this story. Now, we don't understand why he chooses to run. Uh, it's, not, it's not evident yet, but he, he decides that he's going to run. Uh, Calvin would rec- or suggest that he, there's this sense of hopelessness in him, that he has to go and he has to prophesy to these evil people. But we're not really sure. But understand this, Jonah was a Hebrew, and Hebrews were not seafaring people, Okay? And so he did not, he wasn't used to the ocean. They had no experience on the ocean. So it's a pretty big deal for this guy to go down to a cargo ship and travel. And this travel would have taken him well over a year to get away from God because that's how long they say that Tarshish was somewhere uh, maybe in Spain. That's a long trip by boat. He is running from God. He is committed to running. This is not a whim decision. He is paying his fare to run away from God. And the people hearing this would think, you know, what's wrong with him? He's got to be just a little bit crazy here. How can you run from God? Have you ever read the Psalms? You can't go anywhere without God seeing you. You don't get to hide from God. And he knows this. He just chooses to run. Obviously, his plan is better than God's plan. You know, running away from the call of God in your life, running away from how God calls you to live, well, that's just pulling a Jonah. Now, we have just coined a new phrase for our community, pulling a Jonah. Now, I don't want you to run around pointing your finger at people going, oh, just pulled the Jonah, didn't you? In, fa- in fact, this is just like for your own personal reflect- reflection. Oh, I just pulled the Jonah. That's what you should say. Not he just pulled the Jonah, she did. I just pulled a Jonah. Uh, Lawrence Kushner, uh, he would write that uh, we read Scripture not to learn about what happened, but to learn about what is happening to us. The stories are not true because they happened, but because they are happening. See, Jonah's story is is our story, and our story is Jonah's story. Whenever we sin, whenever we make something more important than God, whenever we raise something in our lives to number one and God falls to number two or number three, even if it's in word or thought or deed, we are running from God. We stand in an active defiance to the things that God has called us to in our lives. We stand in an active defiance to the rhythms and the harmonies that God has set forth before us to live in. We are running from God. It's, it's kind of like us saying, okay, hey God, don't worry. I got this. My plan is better than your plan and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it my way. That's pulling a Jonah. You know, it's not that 
in those moments we stop believing in God. It's in those moments that we actually become our own God. Jonah didn't stop believing in God. If he stopped believing in God, he wouldn't have run. He wouldn't have got on a ship and tried to get away from God. He just believes that his plan is better than God's plan. That he has it figured out. That he knows best. And God has obviously made a mistake in all of this. Which is pride and arrogance. Which we can say is the root of all of humanity's sin. And so the story continues. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea. And such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? So you can see right off the bat, Jonah gets on the boat. He he, he goes out and we can tell that God is in control of this situation. It's not like he had to take control back. He wasn't sitting there going, I never thought he would run. Now what do I do? God knew exactly how this was all going to play out, and he is always in control. Even when you think you have wrestled control out of his hands, he is in control. You know, the thought that humanity can wrestle control out of God's hands. There's actually a theological um, a theological word that describes it. It's called, ha! And, and, and that's, you can find that in most commentaries. To think that you can wrestle control out of God's hands. And he sends a storm, the mother of all storms. Experienced sailors are terrified on this boat. And so what do they do? The first thing they do, they send up the SOS prayers. You know, you know those prayers when, when things are going really bad? You know those people that kind of seem to only pray when things go really bad? And they send up the SOS prayers like, God, I'm in a lot of trouble. Can you help me, please? Right? And so, and so no God is left untouched. They're hitting all their gods. They're making sure they're covering all of their bases. SOS, SOS. In fact, Jonah gets yelled at. Send some SOS up to your God. See what happens. But this problem is way too big for fake or false gods. And so what do the sailors do? They take matters into their own hands. They start throwing cargo over the ship. They're trying to save themselves. And it doesn't seem like it's working. They just can't seem to save themselves. Sounds very Jesus-esque, don't it? This whole book points to Jesus. And so they, they take the cargo, they throw it over, they can't figure out. I mean, I feel sorry for these guys. Here, here's Jonah just... He's kind of a bonehead and he's down below and he's sleeping and these guys are freaking out and they're doing everything that they can. They just want to go and get to the place that they're traveling to. Don't you feel a little sorry for them? Come on, just say yeah. You know you do. Man, you're just, are you okay? Are you thinking about Build-A-Burgers? 
No. See, now I don't even know where I am. Oh, yeah, this is going to get good. So the sailors, they pray to their false gods. They try to do things on their own. They try to throw the cargo out, save themselves. They can't do it. If only, if only this was talking about just people who are not Christian. If only this was just addressing people who are outside of the Christian faith. Because I have found Jesus followers acting the same way. Maybe even you know some people like that. They go and they create a God in their own image. A God that's very comfortable for them. A God that works for them. Francis Chan in his book Erasing Hell said this, that deep down in the heart of every person is a hidden desire to reinterpret Jesus in light of our own culture, political bent, or favorite theological belief. And when we actively pursue that mentality, we create a God that is not the God of the Bible, but is the God for me. A God that's comfortable, a God that's cozy, a God that agrees with everything that you say and everything that you do, a God that you don't have to deal with until you need something from him, and he's just waiting, waiting to give you whatever you ask for. And he loves the SOS prayers too. And we create this, this false God. And then when those people realize that that doesn't work, you know, those Christians, what do they do? They try to handle it themselves. They try to take control of the situation themselves. And they try to fix it themselves. And they fail miserably on all accounts. Now, I know none of us Oasians, we would ever do anything like that. But there are Christians like out there in the other churches that may try to create a God to fit their own image. And then when that doesn't work, they try to handle things in their own strength. And so the storm, man, it's just like raging on, right? And the sailors are, are freaking out. And it's interesting how the sin of Jonah is affecting other people. See, our sin in our lives affects other people. He's down below and he's just sleeping blissfully unaware of the consequences on deck. He has no idea that everybody is losing their minds. Now, at the beginning of the story, we said that it said that Jonah went down or was going down to Joppa. And then we see here that he is below the deck. And then we'll see later on in a few weeks that he actually sinks toward the bottom of the ocean. And it's no coincidence the way this story is being told because that is the description of a life, the life of a person who is running away from God. They continually just spiral down, and guess what? It pulls other people, the people around them in their lives, it pulls them down with them. Jonah is causing heartache for a lot of people. He doesn't even know. And we, you know, we, we as Christ followers, we in the church, not too many of us would say that, that we have enough of God, right? I mean, not many of us would say, you know what? I got all the God that I need and I'm good. My relationship is perfect. I have arrived. 
In fact, I hear angels every morning and I'm lulled to sleep by harps at night. I'm good, right? I mean, we all desire, you know, grace and mercy in our lives. We all desire to know God's purpose and his plans for us. We all desire that, that godly Christ-like passion to live. Let me tell you something. You will not experience any of those things running away from God. And we said that running away is your willful disobedience to the things that God has called you to in your life. It's a willful disobedience to live outside of the harmonies and the rhythms that God has set up. And by running away, you cannot be the person that God fully wants you to be. And by not being that person, you cannot pour out the blessings that God would have you pour out on other people. And so Jonah, he's down below and he's sleeping, right? And the captain comes down. And he's like, dude, what are, you, what are you doing? Things are happening up there. Pray to your God. Maybe he'll hear us. Maybe we won't die. And the guys up top, they're lo- nothing is working. The SOS prayers go out. They don't work. They throw the cargo over. They don't work. The storm is getting worse. What do they do? They throw dice. I guess when, when all else fails, gamble a little bit and maybe you'll get the answer, right? So they cast lots. Come on. Boom. It lands on Jonah. And not only does the lot land on Jonah, but so do the questions. And they start firing off questions at him. What in the, what, who, who are you? What are you doing for real? They're terrified, terrified of what's going on. And they want to know who this guy is. And this is Jonah's response. He answered, I'm a Hebrew. And I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. His answer, when he said, I am a Hebrew, it's not like saying I am Polish or I am Italian. There's something deeper going on in that statement. What he's saying, I am a Hebrew, and that would separate him from the rest of the nations. He's saying, I am a follower of God. I am a follower of Yahweh. And then he, then he has the audacity to say, I, am, um, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. In the Hebrew, the word, the literal translation for the word worship is fear. He says, I fear the Lord. The guy who creates everything. I fear the Lord. And this is, this is pretty interesting. Coming by a guy who is running from God. It's very kind of not consistent with his actions. He was called by God. He deliberately runs from him. He puts others at risk. He's sleeping as the consequence of his sin is playing out in other people's lives. Almost like he doesn't care. And then he tells people, oh, I'm, I'm a Hebrew. I, I, fear, I fear the Lord. And I read this, and I think about this, and, and I say, oh my goodness, this was written for the church today. It was like Jonah knew that there would be something called Christians, and he just said, I'm going to give them something to chew on you know, a couple thousand years from now. It's written for the church You know, Jesus' followers are one of the biggest stumbling blocks to other people to get to God. Do you hear what I just said? We, 
Jesus followers, can be one of the biggest stumbling blocks for other people to get to Christ, to get to God. Gandhi wrote this. He said, I like your Christ. I don't like your Christians because your Christians are so not like your Christ's. Man, how, what if Gandhi became a Jesus follower? You think how cool that would be? Him and Eminem. I think Eminem would make a good Christian. No, I'm serious, because he's very poetic in his own way. But just, I digress. So anyway, so, so we have become the biggest stumbling block, or one of the biggest stumbling blocks, to people coming to God. And so, okay, hypocrisy in the church? Hypocrisy in Christianity? Really? Well, yes, absolutely. But it's okay, I think, that we can ask the question, well, what about other religions? What about other faiths? What about Judaism? What about Hinduism? What about Islam? What about atheists? Are there, is there hypocrisy in those faiths? I would say yes. Anytime you put human beings, you add us in the mix, there's going to be hypocrisy. It's kind of, it's kind of in our nature. It's kind of written in our DNA. We are hypocrites. But what I found, what I find interesting is I've traveled the world and, and talked to a lot of people. I've never heard people outside of the church or outside of faith complain about the hypocrisy of people in those other faiths. Now, if you press for an answer, if you press them in the conversation, they will say, of course, there's hypocrisy in in, in the other faiths. But it's almost like, and I don't know why, maybe I do know why. In fact, I'll share why. But but, but it's like like Christianity is the default. Well, Christians, they they say one thing and they do another. You know, they they, they say one thing and and they they do another. Okay, here's, here's what I believe. I believe that there's something wired in us that has to do with truth and hypocrisy. There's something wired in our very soul that has to, that, 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 that there's something that connects the two together. Now follow me here. I'm going to give you a very extreme example, okay? I'm not trying to, uh, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to anyone's, any other faith. But this is just to make a point, and so it's going to be an over-the-top example. Okay, let's just say, what if I'm a unicornian, okay? In my faith, I worship the unicorn, and I worship the sacred writings of the unicorn. And, uh, you know, I'm all, about, I'm all about rainbows and blue skies and fluffy clouds and sunshine and glitter, and, and I base my life on that. And, and I live my, and I say that I live my life as a unicornian. I love the unicorn. But you all have noticed in me that, that I really, the rubber's not meeting the road. Maybe I'm not sprinkling enough glitter around where I'm walking. I, well, whatever it is. And you begin to question the authenticity of my proclaiming that I'm a unicornian. Now, I will bet you, if this were true, you might, call a counselor for me, but after that, I bet you that you wouldn't be too upset with me. I mean, you wouldn't be mad at me, right? You'd be like, unicorn in my, yeah, right. No sprinkling, no glitter. You wouldn't hate unicorns, right? Just because that I wasn't living up to my unicornian beliefs. 
I hate unicorns now. I would never go into a unicornian temple if there was such a, I don't know, making this stuff up as I go. You wouldn't be, but I would still be a hypocrite. I would be saying one thing and doing another. What if, what if hypocrisy that's deeply felt, hypocrisy that can actually influence people, what if hypocrisy, when truth is at stake, what if, what if deep down inside, deep down inside people, even on an on a unconscious level, what if people know that the God of the Bible is truth? What if deep down inside, even, even if they don't know it, that there's something that, that pulls them to the place that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is not only the way, that he is not only life, but he is also the truth. And when the truth is not lived out by those professing it, then people are quick and vocal to take notice. And they walk away from it all. It's a joke when it's about a unicorn. But what if hypocrisy, when it's, when it's thrown into the face of truth, is what influences people? How often do I see and I'm going to say, I guess, non-Christian people living the tenets of our faith. They love each other, care for each other, and they give grace and mercy to each other. Yes, all without Christ, I get that. But they're living the tenets of our faith, and they're sharing grace and mercy on deep, deep levels. You know that, that any love that is shown in this world is God love? Because God is love. And so love that is shown, no matter who shows it or what they believe, is from God. How many people outside of our faith love deeper and more graceful or less judgmental in a hurtful, arrogant way? How often is the church accused of using grace to be hurtful and mean and selfish, self-righteous, arrogant? Hypocrisy in the face of truth is damaging. The sailors in this story, the sailors, the pagan sailors, feared God. When Jonah said, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land, this terrified them. They feared God more than Jonah. I guess the question you all have to wrestle with and I have to wrestle with, how about you? Lord, I want to thank you for your grace.
your mercy, even in the face of even in the face of our hypocrisy, you still love us. Strengthen us, Lord, to, to live the faith that you have called us to live. And we look to Jesus for our strength and for our rescue. Amen.